Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Running Mate, a podcast for Brits about the US election. Last week we brought our run of episodes explaining the brain-frying world of American politics to an end. But like a packed Donald Trump rally in a pandemic, we're carrying on despite the health risks. So while we could be like Joe Biden and sit in our basement until election day, we've decided instead to put together a roundup of some of the best insights from our US colleagues we've spoken to over the last two and a half months. That two and a half months included a shouting match masquerading as a TV debate, multiple protests against racial injustice, and, oh yeah, the president wondering whether he would be, quote, one of the dyers after contracting coronavirus. So let's start with a candidate leading in the polls, Joe Biden. We found out the Delaware dwelling, ice cream obsessive, one-time Obama veep, now 77, has been in politics since he was 29, when the US Senate was a club dominated by white conservative men, even more than it is today. But his longevity in politics is only part of his public profile, as Kevin Robillard and Tara Golshan explained. The other major fact about him is that he's had a life that was really shaped by tragedy. Uh, Shortly after he got elected to the Senate, uh, his wife and one of his young children died in a car accident uh, that left him a single father raising two sons. Um, He later remarried and had another daughter. Um, And then more recently, one of those sons, Beau Biden, who had been uh, Delaware's attorney general and was very much following Joe into public life, uh, died of brain cancer. Um, And so he's really had these sort of two tragedies bookend his political life that's made him a very sympathetic figure to many and a very, um, you know, people have said empathy is Joe Biden's superpower. Right. Uh, That's something he really uses to connect with voters. And something I think that happened in between that is that he became vice president to Barack Obama <laughs> and um, he, he kind of became Barack Obama's side uh, right-hand man um, for eight years and kind of cultivated this um, kind of buddy relationship and persona with Barack Obama and has benefited from that, that friendship immensely since and kind of uh, rebranding his image in, in public life. So while Biden's gone heavy on empathy, unity and the fight for the soul of the nation, Trump's plan has been simple. Attack, attack, attack. Here's Sharish Date. We've already seen this. His, his strategy is to say, well, you think this is bad. Boy, it'll be so much worse if Joe Biden is president. And I mean, that's kind of all he has, because this is what a re-election campaign is always about. It's about the incumbent. And if the incumbent can show that I've done a decent job, uh, almost always that person gets re-elected. And the times that hasn't happened was when people lost confidence in Jimmy Carter, for example, in, in 1980. And the test then was, okay, is the replacement going to be okay? Not, is it going to be great? Is gonna be, can we see him as president? And then when Ronald Reagan didn't collapse in that debate, 
he won. So same thing with uh, with Bill Clinton, George H. W. Bush. Uh, Clinton showed that he's a credible person, and he won. And at this point, basically, they just have to show that somehow that Joe Biden is would be utterly unacceptable. Well, the guy was vice president for eight years when things were relatively good. So that's a tough sell for them. A favorite phrase of the campaign has been, this past week has been a very long year. At one stage, Trump called dead soldiers losers. And we thought that was the last straw. Then the revelation that he'd paid diddly squat in income tax. And we thought that was the last straw. But no one is talking about any of this today. Here's Zach Carter on what he called corruption exhaustion. But I also think Trump says so many awful things. It it kind of just gets, it just sort of goes off into the fog of, oh, there's Trump again. He's just saying stuff. And people don't take seriously what, what a, what a, you know, dramatic event has occurred. You know, the New York Times, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Times basher. My, my wife works there and I, I know they are under all sorts of pressures and difficulties with print deadlines and the, and the rest. But when Trump said this stuff, about not accepting a peaceful transition of power, um, it, it made A15 on, on the newspaper. It, it, it had like a, a one sentence mention on the front page. So it was very small below the fold. It was just, it was like, oh yeah, oh yeah. And by the way, the president said something crazy again today. Um, you know, that um, that phenomenon is real. There's, there's sort of, uh, there's sort of, Corruption exhaustion. <laughs> I remember I used to write about the financial crisis, and for a while, everybody loved all these these stories about banks. But after six months or so, you couldn't get people to read them, no matter how bad the stuff that banks had done was. And you look at the banking system now; it's it's even worse than it was in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. But we all just sort of accept it, and I'm worried that that's going to be, uh, you know, that that's that's what's happening with with just belief in democracy in the United States. <laughs> What people are talking about is the coronavirus. By election day, a quarter of a million Americans could have died. The US's response was uniquely bad, if only for the president suggesting injecting disinfectant could clear it up. Emily Peck explains why the US has been hamstrung in a way the UK hasn't. First, at least since Reagan was president in the 80s, there's been this drumbeat of demonization of government and um, you know he had that thing he used to say like the worst words you can hear are I'm with the government and I'm here to help right I mean it was just this absolute poisoning of what the government can do in a country where we have amazing machinery um, you know um, that can do a lot of good stuff but um, on that side and the conservatives and republicans really started talking trash about <laughs> bureaucracy and government when that's where we, uh, uh, some of our best research has come out of the U.S. government, our best experts, all this. I mean, it's been long before Trump was, you know, demonizing government. There were a lot of other, you know, so-called like upstanding leaders like Reagan, like Bush, and like on the Democratic side too, right? Bill Clinton <clears throat> continued the project of small government. All that's coming home to roost now. So it's been... A long time in the making like you can't trash talk the government and then expect the government to still be around to fix a public health crisis right it's we're deliberately have underfunded and not supported these mechanisms for a, a long time at the same time the other thing people need to understand i think about the u.s and what's happening is is the role race has played all along 
right? I mean, um, in the UK, you guys have public health system. In the US, we don't have it. We have conservatives and Republicans especially, especially demonizing the idea of like Social Security, which is, you know, giving people retirement money or, you know, helping the poor. And a lot of the the hostility towards those programs has to do with racism and not wanting to give black people any kind of support. Um, and I think now there's like a panic almost setting in amongst uh, conservatives who are primarily white about what's happening demographically in the United States. And I think that has um, kind of like heightened and fast-tracked a lot of these tendencies to um, um, away from sort of like and we're all in it together kind of mentality here because there is this strand of like all the whites are in it together and and screw all the black people. I, I really believe that. And there's a wonderful book I just read called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson that makes the case far more eloquently than I could. Um, so I think it's really that combination of racism and this like long term project to discredit and demonize the government. <laughs> Protests over the death of George Floyd defined the early stages of the campaign. Demonising Black Lives Matter was central to Trump's attempt to redefine the election as a battle over law and order. Here's Jahan Jones and Taryn Finley on Trump's claim that he's done more for black people than any president since slavery was abolished. I mean, the people listening can't see the the goofy smile on my face, but I am kind of chuckling about this. Um, it's absurd. Uh, it's not convincing anybody. I mean, the black people who have lived experiences of being black um, throughout the Trump presidency can tell you that it hasn't improved since he's gotten in office. Um, it's so it, the audience for that isn't black people. <laughs> it's white. It's for white people who want to feel as though they have bought into something that has improved the experiences of black life. But um, the black people who have black lives to show otherwise, uh, know otherwise. You know, that comment coming out of the mouth of someone who said, literally called white supremacists fine people mm -hmm. and refers to black people as my African-American and really objectifies, you know, um, our community. I, it, it was just another eye roll for me, <laughs> right, right, right. you know, it, it's just another eye roll in a long list of, or a long, uh, going on four years of, of four plus years, honestly, of me just rolling my eyes at what the hell is going on. The campaign was also marked by the rise of extremism in the US, aided and abetted by the president who flirted with groups such as the Fred Perry wearing Proud Boys and the QAnon conspiracy theory. Andy Campbell and Chris Mathias have covered the far right for the last four years. When well, I hear a lot, you know, shouldn't we just ignore these guys? Um, you know, won't they just go away if we stop giving them a pedestal? And you know what happens when you ignore them is Charlottesville happens and you right. have giant processions of Nazis um, and conspiracy theorists in the streets. And, you know, to QAnon's credit, they have garnered millions upon millions, tens and tens of millions of people across the world who are meeting on Facebook and then meeting in real life. They're meeting all over the country right now. 
Um, and and we have been sort of screaming this from the hilltops for years, uh, only to have them sort of come into the public forum now because there is you know literal bloodshed in the streets in their name. The real fact of it is that these groups are just far less fringe than we might like to imagine. And that's been me and Andy's kind of operating thesis these last four years. You know, these white nationalist groups, these uh, far right militia groups, you know, just generally fascist groups have a direct line to power all over the country. Um, and the man for, and the, the White House itself is teeming with people right. with extremist connections. Stephen Miller, you know, was directly, you know, one of the most senior people in the White House shaping our immigration policy is, you know, functionally a white nationalist. And we, we know that from emails that he sent, from leaked emails, um, when he was, um, you know, coordinating with, with Breitbart News. Um, and, and also, like, QAnon is not fringe. Um, it, is a, it is essentially the future of the Republican Party at this point. Trump says Biden is either sleepy or an agent of socialist chaos. Make your mind up, Don. But that's nothing compared to what he called Hillary Clinton four years ago. Sexism played a huge role in his 2016 win. So do women in US politics have a unique problem compared to other countries? Alana Vagianos and Marina Fang explain. Back in 2016, Hillary Clinton supporters were harassed so much on the internet, online, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, that they actually created their own private Facebook group called Pantsuit Nation to right. share and like certain things that they liked about Hillary because they weren't actually safe to do it on the regular internet. So they had to create a, a closed safe space um, on Facebook in order to do that. Yeah. Online culture, for sure, has exposed so much of the sexism that we're, we're talking about. I mean, Donald Trump is the perfect example of we see men enable people's behavior. We see men, you know, look the other way. And I think that right. really extends to the highest levels in, in politics when men don't necessarily see combating sexual misconduct as a big issue worthy of trying to push legislation forward on. At times, US politics makes the UK seem quaint. Two British journalists based in the US, Cordelia Lynch at Sky News and Vice News' Tess Owen, explain it's at its most jarring when you turn on the tube. Sorry, television. I think it's insane how long the election here goes on for. Like, I think in the UK, it's about five weeks compared to what seems like absolutely forever here. And especially at times when the country is already so polarized, it just really lets this very toxic moment just drag out um, for like a year and a half. And then I think as well, the way that the election's treated on like cable news, like the intense partisanship, and you can really see why people get especially now, get trapped into their own echo chamber because if you go between, for example, like MSNBC and Fox, it is like just looking at a completely different country um, through two different lenses. It's absolutely um, surreal to me. Cordelia, you must notice that, particularly being a broadcaster, the difference between how you broadcast in as a British journalist in the US compared to your um, contemporaries, I guess, in the, in the US. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with Tess and I actually find it really frustrating. Um, you see these kind of, it's almost like a sort of post-game panel 
where you've got kind of 10 commentators all confirming each other's position. And that position has been laid out by the channel early on in the campaign. It's either feverish enthusiasm for a candidate or absolute sort of incredulity um, at them. And, and very rarely do you actually hear from voters. And I'm kind of stunned that four years later, when one imagines newsrooms hopefully scratched their heads and spoke to each other about why they failed to identify the rise and appeal of Donald Trump. And you'd think one of the keys to sort of rectifying the problem was going out and and chatting to people in those swing states and understanding what it was or what it is about Donald Trump. And yet I still don't see that much. I mean, we were out, um, we've been kind of out and about throughout this year, throughout COVID in the hospitals in I think I've traveled to about 10 states and um, we've done quite a lot around kind of voting. And it's it's tricky this year because I think there are a lot of complexities to the debate. They're not ideal candidates for lots of people. Um, and we're rarely seeing American crews or broadcasters. And, and it's kind of worrying because it feels like a real disservice to, to the country. So here we are, election night. What do we need to look for? Paul Blumenthal and Ariel Edwards-Levy reckon it'll all come down to the Rust Belt and the Sun Belt. I think, you know, we, we said Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the states that delivered the White House to Trump last time that he won by an extremely, extremely thin margin. You know, tens of thousands of votes we're talking about, very, very small in those states. But, you know, when you're watching on election night, the first things to watch for are the states that are going to be able to report, uh, you know, the total vote er as early as possible. And that's important this year because of the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of people are voting by mail and some states aren't allowed to process or count those votes until the polls close or until the morning of Election Day. And so states like you look at states like Florida or North Carolina or Ohio, and they can process and count these votes ahead of time. And so they might be able to report, you know, a whole tranche of early votes very early in the night. And so, I mean, I think if we see Joe Biden winning Florida being called or North Carolina or Ohio, especially, I think it becomes safe to assume that he is winning the election. There's been some reporting that uh, the Trump campaign says is their thinking is that Trump as a sort of baseline needs to win Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Ohio. So those are states where if it's going overwhelmingly Biden, once we have enough votes from all the different streams, have a sense of where those going, that that's probably a pretty good sign for the Biden campaign. If those are close, then you start looking at other states, Arizona, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, you know, those Rust Belt states again, that in addition that Trump won narrowly the last time. But I think he needs to start with winning those big couple of big states. And if that doesn't look in reach for him, that tells us something. If it's close, that tells us it could be a longer night. So just election night to go, which I'm sure we'd all agree will be just as relaxing as watching Bob Ross paint a mountain retreat. Good luck, everyone. <laughs>